Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, hey, church family, glad to have you with us, at least digitally, once again. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of First Peter, chapter 3. First Peter, chapter 3. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad to have you tuning in, however you stumbled upon us on the interweb. Uh, just super glad that you're listening in and kind of learning from the scriptures with us. Uh, if you didn't already know, our church has been in this series on the book of First Peter, which is actually an ancient letter written to some followers of Jesus living sort of under the nose of the Roman Empire. And in this letter, Peter, who's the author, is trying to help his audience learn how to live within the existing relationships and social structures and systems of their day. Peter's take on all of this is that the way followers of Jesus engage in those things in their society has this incredible opportunity and ability to draw people to the way of Jesus as a result. So he's sort of giving them instructions and some coaching on how to go about all of that exactly. So today, in the passage that we're going to cover this morning, Peter is going to turn his attention to the relationship of marriage, the topic of marriage and how married people relate to one another. So let's do this. Let's just read through the entire passage, sort of like we did last week, and and it'll sort of bring up a few things that we will then need to unpack and wrap our minds around a little. So take a look with me at chapter three, starting in verse one. We'll read verses one through seven. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And just like that, we're off to quite the interesting start. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Alrighty. So obviously, we've got just a thing or two in this passage that we're going to need to unpack a little bit. So here's how I want to go about it, at least in the beginning. I want to start by ruling out a few things that this passage is not saying, a few things that it's not about. So we approach some things this way often around City Church because sometimes we come to certain passages of the Bible with all sorts of presumptions and assumptions in our head. And sometimes those assumptions, if they aren't addressed first, make it near impossible for us to hear what a text is actually trying to say. 
So sometimes before we can truly process what a passage is about, we need to first discuss briefly what it's not about. And so we'll try to do these relatively quickly, but let's lay out four important things that this passage in 1 Peter is not about. First, this passage is not about how marriage is the point of life. It's not about how marriage is the point of life. So by addressing husbands and wives in this text, Peter is not trying to imply that everyone should have a husband or everyone should have a wife. And maybe that seems like a silly thing to clarify, but sometimes I think we operate, especially in the church, as if marriage is sort of the point of life. But it isn't, at least not according to the Bible. Jesus, the person at the very center of our faith, who we believe ultimately all this stuff is about him, he remained single his entire life and never so much as engaged in a romantic relationship at all. So any framework that operates as if all people should be married at some point is, in my view, and I think in the Bible's, distinctly unchristian in its very nature. So practically, for those of you who are single, as you listen to this teaching on marriage, here's a couple ways you might can think about it. If you're single now, but you want to be married one day and think you're supposed to be married one day, obviously this will apply to you in the future. If you're listening to this and you don't want to get married or don't think you're supposed to get married, chances are you still have people in your life who are married. So one way to listen to this is to learn how you can love those people, shepherd those people, and point them to Jesus, especially as it relates to their marriage. But just for clarity, this passage is not about how marriage is the point of life, because it isn't. Next up, this passage is not about how men are better than women. It's not about how men are better than women. People have often referenced passages like this one in the Bible to insist that the Bible promotes sexist or chauvinist behavior or to try and say that all women should be subject to all men, that women shouldn't be CEOs or presidents or professors or things like that. But to take that notion away from this passage is actually just to project sexist inclinations back into the text. So Peter, in this very passage, actually calls wives, quote, heirs with their husbands of the grace of life. That phrase, heirs with their husband, in the Greek is actually co-heirs, which is significant because wives in Peter's day were seen as inferior to men. They were seen as men's property. They were certainly not seen as co-heirs with men. So to operate as if this passage is somehow about men being superior to women in general is actually to make this passage say the precise opposite of what it would have communicated to its original audience. So that's not what this passage is about either. It's not about how men are better than women. Next, this passage is not about silencing women. It's not about silencing women. I think it's easy for us to read Peter's statements about a woman's gentle and quiet spirit and think that he is pushing for women to just be silent, which is precisely not what we need in today's world, obviously. But that also is to completely miss what Peter is saying. His instruction is that they should let their adorning be that of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's not the same thing as saying don't have an opinion or don't have a voice. 
For instance, if you were about to go into a job interview and my advice to you on that job interview is, hey, make it clear to the people interviewing you that you're a team player, that you're agreeable, that you're a flexible worker, all of that. If I say that to you, that's not the same thing as me saying, don't ever challenge anything the entire time that you work there because you want to be agreeable. That would be to misunderstand the nature of my advice to you entirely. Well, in a similar way, Peter's saying, hey, let your adorning be that of a gentle and a quiet spirit is not the same thing as saying, don't ever say anything or be completely silent. This passage is not about silencing women. And lastly, and this one is very important for us to hear, I think, in today's world, this passage is not a license for abusive behavior towards women. This passage is not a license for abusive behavior towards women. So you might be inclined to read these instructions to wives and think that it is leaving the door wide open for husbands to be physically and emotionally abusive towards their wives. But in order to read it that way, you have to completely leave off the instructions to husbands in this passage. After everything that Peter says to wives, he then turns to husbands and says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel. So if you take away from this passage that men get to do whatever they want and women just have to submit to it, you're actually ignoring half of who this passage is to. That's not what this passage is saying either. It's not giving license for any type of abusive behavior. So hopefully that at least helps rule out some things that this passage is not saying. And obviously that's not to say that you don't hear plenty of people often trying to make this passage about any of those things. But the simple fact is that it's not, not in its original context. But with all of that said, what is this passage about exactly? Here's how I think we could summarize what Peter is trying to get at here. This passage is about how a Christian should relate to their non-Christian spouse for the purpose of putting Jesus on display. It's about how a Christian should relate to their non-Christian spouse for the purpose of putting Jesus on display. That, I think, is what this passage is about, or at least primarily about. Now, with that, I think a very important clarification also needs to be made. And that's that the Bible would actually tell you not to put yourself in that type of situation in the first place, being a Christian married to a non-Christian. So in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read these instructions about not being unequally yoked with a non-believer. Now that would include all sorts of different relationships, but certainly one that it would include would be marriage. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you are in a romantic relationship with someone who is not a follower of Jesus, or or you're considering being in a relationship like that, let me just tell you what's going to happen if you continue in that relationship and eventually prepare to marry that person. If you get married, either you will make following Jesus 10 times harder than it has to be because you are joining your life together with somebody that does not want to follow him, or Two, you will eventually just decide to not follow Jesus yourself because it's just too difficult to do. One of those two things are likely to happen. And the Bible says, hey, why would you do either of those things? Just don't get into that relationship in the first place. That's a far better way to approach it. Now, that being said, 
I know that the pressure to be in a relationship, and specifically a romantic relationship, is overwhelming in our society. And and the fear that so many of us have of, of perceived lifelong loneliness might seem absolutely terrifying to us. And I get all of that. But hear me out on this. The loneliness that comes from being the only person in a relationship who follows Jesus is a far worse kind of loneliness. Being in a marriage where your spouse has no interest in going about life the same way you do and caring about the same things that you care about, that is far worse than what you're trying to avoid by just being in a romantic relationship. So, Please take the scriptures up on their wisdom here. Do not entertain a relationship with someone who doesn't follow Jesus. Just don't get into the relationship in the first place. I I don't want you to think that because Peter brings up that scenario, the marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian in this passage, that he's telling you to pursue that type of scenario. What Peter is trying to do is help those who are already in that unideal situation approach it well and in a faithful way. That's not the same thing as him telling you to put yourself in that type of unideal situation. Hopefully that makes sense. So in the, in the case of Peter's audience, some of them found themselves in that situation already either because one of them converted to Christianity after they got married or because they were just unaware of that instruction when they got married. So within that context, when the people are already in that type of scenario, Peter is simply trying to offer them some practical instructions on marriage between a believer and a non-believer. Now, That does leave those of us who aren't in that situation, so those of us who are Christians and we're married to a Christian, going, well, okay, what does this passage have to do with me then? And the short answer is that there are still ideas and general principles throughout this passage that still very much apply to us if we're married to a Christian, and we'll discover those sort of as we go along. But with that said, let's work back through our passage all the way through and see how all of this fits into that framework. Starting in verse 1, Peter says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So, Right there is where I got my statement that this passage is about the relationship between a Christian and a non-Christian. That is the primary scenario that Peter has in mind because he says that the goal is that the non-Christian husband might be, quote, one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So it's easy for us to read this and become hyper-focused on the parts of it that seem really culturally out of sync with our society. But again here, don't miss the provocative nature of Peter saying what he says. Peter wants wives to, quote, be subject to their husbands for the purpose of influencing their husbands. He wants these women to be a part of shaping and molding how their husbands think and approach life. Now, this was a radical notion in Peter's day. Usually a wife was not even permitted to worship a different God than her husband did. Here, Peter says, not only should the wife worship a different God than her husband, but she should also aim to influence her husband towards the way of Jesus instead. And so next, Peter is going to go into some things that should characterize this sort of influential type of behavior from wives towards their husband. Picking it back up in verse 3, he says this, 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, so let's just camp out for a second here. On one level, it should probably be noted that the specific things Peter brings up here and discourages are very culturally defined. So hair braiding and gold jewelry communicated something very different in Peter's day than they do now. Back then, doing those types of things with your appearance were were intended to sort of flaunt a person's wealth and beauty in over-the-top extravagant sorts of ways. I don't know that those things have the exact same effect in our society today. So I don't know that any of us see a woman with her hair braided and go, wow, she's really showing off. Like, who does she think she is? I doubt any of us see friends wearing a small pair of gold earrings and go, wow, you're really trying to draw attention to yourself today. That's just not the way it works in today's society. Back then, those sorts of things drew those sorts of reactions. Today, they don't, or at least not nearly as much. But at the same time, I think the principle of all of this still very much applies. So ladies, if I could just speak directly to you for just a moment. The world that you live in will try to tell you in a hundred different ways that your worth, your value, your significance comes from how many people you can get to glance your way. That's the message. And it will tell you that in order to accomplish that, you need the latest styles, you need the most expensive styles, you need to show just a little more skin, a little more cleavage, and oh, by the way, you need to do all of this while keeping your body looking like a Photoshop celebrity with a full-time dietitian working for them. And society will then tell you that if you do all of those things successfully as a woman, you will get anyone and everyone to glance your way. And then it will try to tell you that having people gaze at your body is empowering to you as a woman. The problem is that it's not empowering, it's objectifying. That's turning you into a thing to be looked at rather than a human being to be cherished. The notion that your value as a human being comes from your appearance is an outright lie. And it is a lie that is tearing its way through women who are valuable image bearers of God already. And part of the reason I am so passionate about all of this is that just under a year ago, I had a daughter. And so it got even more personal for me. And even though she's not quite a year old, I already can feel my blood pressure rising as a dad at how early and how often she is going to have this lie communicated to her as a woman. And I know it's going to be an absolute battle to tell her throughout her life that Jesus gives her value and that her looks and appearance have nothing to do with it. And I know that part of the reason some of you ladies struggle with this is because you did not grow up in an environment that helped you fight that lie well. You grew up in environments where it was reinforced in a number of different ways that your value comes from your appearance. And man, I grieve over that for you. That's not the way it was supposed to be. And so if you've never heard someone say this to you before, I want you to hear us say it today. Your value has nothing to do with how you look. 
Your significance has nothing to do with how you dress. Your importance has nothing to do with what store or what brand your clothes come from. Your value, your worth, your importance, your significance comes from the fact that you were made in the image of God and that before the foundations of the world, God set his affections on you and sent his son Jesus to make you a part of his family and to give you worth and to give you value. And anything else is a lie. And and listen, that type of value, that type of worth, that type of significance, that does not fade with age or beauty. It never fades. And, And that far outranks any type of fleeting, temporary, magazine cover level beauty that the world will try to sell to you. And I want you to hear us say that. And so what Peter is fighting for is for you, ladies, to live out of that reality. That who you are is so much more important than what you look like. He's encouraging you to make it your aim, ladies, that when people notice something about you, when people remember something about you, it is not primarily, oh, she wears really cute clothes, but rather, wow, she has the character of Jesus. And he says that when we live as if that's true, we show the watching world a better way forward. We show them a better way to look at human beings. And when we live that way, God might just use it to draw people around us to himself, including a non-believing spouse. That's his point here. So just quickly before we move on, let's just consider a couple reflection questions on all of this. I've got one question for our women to consider and a different question for our men to think through. First, for women, in what ways are you tempted to believe that your value comes from your appearance? Where is it easy for that lie to take hold in your heart? Uh, Is it in how much of your money and your budget goes towards clothes and hair products and makeup? Is it in what brands you feel like you have to wear in order to feel okay about yourself? Is it in what size you feel like you have to be in order to be pretty? Is it in how much skin you have to be showing in order for people to look at you? Is it in the type of photos that you feel like you have to post of yourself on social media? I don't know how it specifically reveals itself in you and in your life and in your heart, but in what ways are you tempted to believe, ladies, that your value comes from your appearance? That's the question that I'd love for our ladies to consider. Now, a question for men, too, because we have a responsibility in all of this as well. For men, in what ways might you be reinforcing that the value of women comes from their appearance? In what ways might you be reinforcing this? So men, do you compliment your wife or other women on their appearance more than you compliment them on anything else, including their character? Do you mainly only spend time talking to and developing friendships with women who are attractive? Uh, Here's another one. Men, does porn still have a foothold in your life at all? Because just so we're all clear, porn actually disciples us to value women and people in general based on their physical appearance. That's what it's teaching you to do when you look at it. 
So for men, whatever it is, whatever way it shows up, are there ways in your life that you can think of where you might be reinforcing this lie for women rather than helping them fight against it? So there are two questions, one for women, one for men. If you're watching this, we'll leave those two up on the video. And I want you to just take a second, pause this teaching and reflect on those questions. You can do that now. So when describing the type of imperishable beauty that women should aim for instead of all of that, Peter specifically mentions the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, to help discern what Peter means by this, I think it's worth noting that the same language is actually used in the Bible to describe Jesus himself. So in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the same exact language that's here in 1 Peter. It's the same word that Jesus uses again in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the meek, or that word is actually gentle. So in these instructions to wives, Peter is not necessarily asking wives to embody anything that isn't true of men, anything he doesn't embody himself, or anything he doesn't actually commend in all people regardless of their gender. But he is calling women specifically to embody this character trait of Jesus in how they relate to their husbands. He continues on in verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, ladies, once again, some of this is cultural. So if you weren't crazy about referring to your husband as Lord after this, that's probably okay. This is simply a reference to Genesis chapter 18, where in a prayer, Sarah refers to her husband Abraham with a title of respect. Abraham wasn't even present when this happened. But it shows us that even when Abraham, even when her husband is not around, Sarah speaks about her husband with honor and respect towards him. It reveals a heart attitude of hers where she sees him as valuable and valued. That's what it means to respect someone. It means to see them as valuable and valued. So married women listening to this, I'd love to just invite you to consider something for a moment. Is that how you speak about your husband when he's not around? Not with the term Lord specifically, but with the posture of valuing and respecting him. So the people that hear you talk about your marriage the most in your life, would they take away from those conversations, wow, she really values and respects her husband? Is that what they would come away with after talking to you about your marriage? Just an idea worth considering. Now, that's not saying that you don't ask for help from other people when aspects of your marriage are not going well. That's not saying that. That doesn't mean that you have to talk about your husband like he's flawless and never does anything wrong. But there is a way to talk about even the issues within your marriage in a way that still values and respects your husband rather than tearing him down and making him look like an idiot. So wives, if your husband needs to grow in something, and I can assure you, we need to grow in lots of things, okay? If if your husband needs to grow in something and you notice it, you should go and talk to him about it like a grown-up talks to another grown-up and invite him to grow in it. And husbands, when she does that, 
you respond like a grown-up responds to constructive criticism from another grown-up and you take it to heart. You don't respond by pointing out something that she does wrong to. You don't respond with defensiveness and sort of shirking it off. You say, hey, thank you for bringing that up. Can you tell me more about that? And then you get to work growing in it. That's the type of posture that the gospel generates in a husband towards his wife. And that leads us to verse 7, because Peter is now going to pivot things a little and turn his attention directly towards husbands. So take a look with me in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter says that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that Peter brings up the idea of understanding here, considering that understanding is sometimes the hardest thing for some husbands to do. I'll just speak for myself in this regard. When my wife, Anna, brings up something difficult that she's dealing with in life, Almost always the thing that she first wants me to do is understand. And almost always the thing that I first want to do is fix or solve the problem. And I'm guessing there's at least a person or two listening to this that can identify with that type of dynamic. So men, a word of advice in your interactions with not just women, but honestly, all people. If someone is going through something difficult and they talk to you about it, Priority number one is always to understand. I'm going to say that again so you can write it down because you should probably be writing it down. Priority number one is always to understand. Always. Now, there may also be times like that where you really can help fix or help solve a problem. That may be the case as well. But the first thing you should always try to do is understand. So just to help you a little bit with how to do that. Uh, understanding could look like asking yourself the question, how would I feel if I was in their type of scenario? If, if what happened to them happened to me or something similar, how would I feel as a result? And, and even if the answer is, well, I would feel way differently than they are right now because I think the way that they're acting is silly or the way they're responding is silly. Even if that's the response, then you proceed to the next question, which is, okay, when have I felt something similar to what they're feeling? When have I felt something like what they're feeling right now? If you do that, that is going to give you a lot to go on in terms of how to respond to them most helpfully. And then even if you end up helping to fix the problem eventually, you can do that with understanding and with empathy, which are going to make your solution to the problem 10 times more helpful than it would have been otherwise. Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding sort of way. Then he goes on to say that men are to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, for clarity, that language is referring to physical strength and physical weakness. Nothing else. It's not saying that women are weaker emotionally or spiritually or organizationally. It's saying that in general, women are physically weaker than men are. It's also not saying that every woman is weaker than every man. 
That would be a silly assertion for Peter to make. There are women in our church that do CrossFit and could probably beat me up. Okay, Peter realizes that not every man is stronger than every woman. What Peter is saying, though, is that in general, women are smaller in stature and physically weaker than men are. That's just biology. And this is why domestic violence is far more of an issue coming from men towards women than from women towards men. This is why the rates of sexual assault are far higher from men towards women than they are the other way around. Because there is a physical power differential there, and men far too often exploit that to horrific ends. And specifically, as it relates to our passage today, what's happening in those instances is that the man is doing the polar opposite of what they're called to use their strength to do. They're using their strength to harm rather than to protect, to hurt rather than to help, to control rather than to understand. And so to men who act in those types of ways, Peter gives them a strong warning. He says that their prayers will be hindered. In other words, men, if you do not listen to your wives, God says he may not listen to you either. I want you to feel the intensity of that warning for just a moment. So married men who are listening to this, if you currently feel distant from God, if you feel dry spiritually, I think one of the first questions you should be asking is, how am I treating my wife? Am I listening to her? Am I living with her in an understanding way? And if not, it is possible that my prayers are being hindered because I'm not doing those things. That I'm not showing her honor as the weaker vessel, and that's why I feel distant in my relationship with God. Obviously, that's not going to always be the reason between the uh, reason for the distance between you and God, but it's always a question worth asking. So that's it for our passage. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. That's the recipe for a marriage between a believer and a non-believer, but also on some level between followers of Jesus, when both partners are following Jesus. Now, maybe to you, all of this just sounds so weird and foreign. Like maybe to you, it seems like the focus in a marriage should just be on loving one another and staying in love and not on all this other stuff that we're talking about today. But I think that's where we have to remember what marriage actually is in the Bible and how different that is from what marriage is in our society at large. For For most people in our society, the assumption is that the goal of marriage is to be happy. That marriage at its core is about two people pursuing their happiness by being together. But according to the scriptures, happiness is not the primary goal of marriage. It it should probably be an effect of marriage from time to time and even often to be sure, but that's not the goal. Happiness is not the goal of marriage according to the Bible. The goal of marriage, according to the Bible, can be found in Ephesians chapter 5. In this passage, Paul is also laying out some specific instructions for how a husband and wife should relate to each other. And he sort of wraps it up with this statement found in Ephesians 5 verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So if you're wondering, that's just stock biblical language to describe marriage. But then he continues on with this in verse 32. And I want you to focus in on this verse specifically. This mystery referring to marriage is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ 
and the church. Paul says that marriage, the marriage relationship, is meant to refer. In other words, it's meant to represent or point us to the relationship between Jesus and the church. The point of marriage, in other words, is to show off the relationship between Jesus and his people. That's what marriage was actually designed to do at its core. The goal is that when people observe a marriage centered around Jesus, that what they would see is a living, breathing representation of the gospel message. That those observing a marriage like that would see a picture of the grace and the patience and the understanding of Jesus. That people would see in a marriage the ferocious, pursuing, relentless love of God towards his people. Your marriage has the potential to show the world what God is like. That's the purpose. And Peter's point in our passage today is that a marriage relationship isn't just an illustration of all of that to people outside of the marriage, but also to the other person in the marriage. And his belief is that God might just use things like that to draw the spouse who doesn't believe into a relationship with Jesus as a result. But listen, that principle is still at play even if you both already follow Jesus. If anything, it's even more at play. So the question can be asked in a more general way as well. Husbands and wives listening to this, consider for just a moment, you likely interact with your spouse more than anyone else interacts with them. So the question is, are you using those interactions to show your spouse what Jesus is like? Is that your posture? When your spouse thinks in their mind of how Jesus loves them, does their mind easily drift to the ways that you love them? Do they think about God's love for them? Oh, I bet his love for me is something like my husband's love for me or my wife's love for me. And if it's not, if if their mind doesn't easily gravitate towards that as an example, where do you need to sit down with them this week and own up to that on your part? Where do you need to start by having the humility to admit that you haven't regularly done that for them or been that for them? One of the first steps to fixing any problem is to acknowledge that there is a problem. So maybe some of us need to start there with our marriages this week to acknowledge where we've fallen short and to know that we have the freedom to do that because our identity is not in our performance. We don't, we don't have any stock in being the perfect husband or the perfect wife. And so we can just admit, hey, here's an area where I haven't done a great job. Will you help me grow in this? And single people, please do not check out on this process. Please. If you're single and you currently share life closely with a married person or a married couple, you may be the most unbiased source of feedback they have on their marriage. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but that really might be you. That might be your place. So if you're single, be willing to have conversations with married people, both when you see really beautiful things in their marriage and you can encourage them in what you see, and also when you see areas of needed growth in their marriage. Married people have the humility to seek out that input from them and single people have the boldness to offer it even when we don't ask for it. 
This is a community project. Marriages that reflect Jesus are a community project. We need one another to speak in if we are going to let one of the most powerful relationships there is point to the most beautiful reality in the universe. And that's the relationship between Jesus and his people. So hopefully this gives us all some things to process and and think through this week going forward. Let me pray for us as we endeavor in all of that. Father, thanks for who you are. Father, thanks for um, giving us the model that marriage is to be based on, for sending your son Jesus to live his life among us in an understanding way, but also to give up his life for our sake. God, thank you that that is where we get to look to see what our marriage relationship should look like. And so, God, I just want to pray that as a result of Peter's words in this passage, that you would help all of us to evaluate, does my marriage reflect that currently? You would help our single people to consider, uh, do do the marriages that I get a window into, do, do they reflect that reality? And how can I speak in where they don't? So God, would you help all of us by your spirit to build this relationship, the marriage relationship on the, on the example and on the template that you've given us through Jesus and the cross. And God, through that, would you, uh, would you use that relationship? Would you use the marriages in our church to, to be a living, breathing example of the relationship between you and your church? So God, would you Uh, be with us. Would you help us? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us conviction to that end? We ask this in your name. Amen.